This is the Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 428. This podcast is brought to you by Lagoon Sleep. With Lagoon Pillows, you'll fall asleep faster because you're matched with the pillow that will be most comfortable for your sleep position and body type. Go to lagoonsleep.com MTA and take their awesome two-minute sleep quiz to find your match. Use the code MTA for 15% off your first purchase. Thanks also to MetPro Nutrition Coaching for sponsoring the podcast. You can speak with one of their metabolic experts about your goals. Just go to metpro.co slash MTA, metpro.co slash MTA. Thanks also to AG1. You can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase of AG1. Go to drinkag1.com slash MTA. That's drinkag1.com slash MTA. Hey, hey, welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we inspire and empower you to run a marathon and change your life. In this episode, we replay a popular interview we did with Katherine Switzer, trailblazer who broke the gender barrier and became the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a bib number, and the rest is history, as they say. And just a reminder that as an Academy member, you can get access to all of our archived podcast episodes plus over 80 training plans designed by Coach Angie and a strength training program that integrates with your plan so you can become a stronger, faster runner. Find out how to join when you go to MarathonTrainAcademy.com. All right. Well, we don't often do a replay episode. Uh, This originally aired in 2017, and we realized that there's probably a lot of you that didn't hear it, but you probably know on our last episode, we talked about uh, this really important history the first women's Olympic marathon, which happened in 1984, and the important figures who helped bring that to pass. And of course, uh, Catherine Switzer uh, is one of those important figures. So we thought just kind of as a nice follow-up and a compliment to our last episode, we would replay this awesome conversation. But before we do that, let's give some shout outs. Angie was a huge day at the Marine Corps Marathon, and we got some people we want to give props to. So what went down out there? Not just at MCM, but uh, some other races. Yeah, we would like to say congratulations to Pia. She says, hey, Angie and Trevor, I just wanted to thank you all for your podcast. I just completed the Marine Corps Marathon, and it was my first. My family said I looked like I was in good spirits the whole time, even though it was a hot race. And I attribute it to listening to your episode on running a self-leadership at the beginning of the race. You're 100% correct that running a marathon will change your life. Ah, love it. Well, congrats on running your first marathon. This comes from Maripat. She says, when I had my first consultation with MTA and was asked my goal, I said I wanted to be on their website with, I finished my first marathon at age 60. Today, thanks to MTA coach Cindy and some hard work, she says, I stuck to my plan religiously and MTA. Despite record heat, I finished the Marine Corps marathon and was able to share the experience with my daughter. Training definitely paid off. Love it. Well, we will be proud to put you on our website. Uh, Congrats on running your first marathon. That's right. We'd also like to say congratulations to Jacqueline, a client of Coach Antonio. He posted and said, after setting PRs this year at the half marathon and marathon distances, I'd like to congratulate Jackie, who ran her first ultra at the Marine Corps 50K. Jackie executed the plan to perfection despite the high temps and humidity in D.C. 
We actually had several clients and listeners who ran the 50K. Momo says, I guess I can call myself an ultra marathoner. I finished my first 50K at the Marine Corps Marathon. Thank you so much to MTA coach Carrie for helping me through all my injuries and complications during my training. It may not have been my prettiest race, but I still finished. How glad that you were able to get to the finish line. Uh, what she said about Coach Carey helping her with injuries and complications. That's a lot of what a coach is there for. <laughs> it's a huge part of many people's marathon and ultra marathon journey. So being able to navigate that successfully with the help of a coach can be a huge benefit. And congratulations to Alicia. She says, I had a great weekend in Detroit. I completed the mile and 5K on Saturday and the marathon on Sunday. I also got an hour and 25 second PR in the marathon. Nice. She says, I am officially a sub four hour marathoner with a finishing time of 3.57.59. Thanks MTA coach Abby for everything. I couldn't have done this without you. Sub four hour marathon. That feels good right there. We'd also like to say congrats to a longtime listener, Elijah, on finishing a 100-miler over the weekend. He did the Havelina 100, and he says, uh, special shout-out to MTA. I've been listening to the podcast for the past 10 years, so the tips and tricks I've picked up have been invaluable. So that's cool, man. Congrats on earning your buckle at the Havelina 100. Yeah, 100 miles is a massive accomplishment. And this comes from Katrina in Germany. She says, hi, Angie and Trevor. I've been an avid marathoner and yogini for two decades and never had to worry about my weight until I quite quickly gained 15 pounds over the last 12 months. When I heard about MetPro and Angie's journey on the podcast, it clicked immediately for me and I decided to give it a try. She says, I am already several pounds down, but even more important, I have more energy than ever. Thank you so much, Angie, for sharing your story. I am sure I'm not the only person who felt encouraged and inspired by it. And she's, of course, talking about how MetPro helped you um, earn your marathon PR. And that's from Katrina from Germany. Congrats, Katrina, on your progress. And thanks for sharing that story with us. Hey, and by the way, MetPro has been a faithful sponsor of our podcast. And if you feel like your metabolism can use a jolt of energy, give the folks at MetPro a call. Tell them what your situation is. It's awesome to hear from people in our community that they've helped. Everyone's metabolism is unique, and it does change over the years, especially for women during perimenopause, menopause years. And so MetPro coaches can help you work through challenging periods of life. Um, they use the science of metabolic profiling to create an individual nutrition and fitness strategy that's overseen by a certified registered dietitian. So go to metpro.co forward slash MTA. And if you decide to work with one of their coaches, you can get $500 off their concierge coaching. That's metpro.co forward slash MTA. Well, huge congrats to all of you out there running races and taking action. You know, the New York City Marathon's coming up and probably tons of you listening are doing that. And I hope this episode with Catherine Switzer uh, inspires you, even if you've heard it before. So we talked to Catherine back in 2017, 50 years after her historic run at the Boston Marathon in 67, when the race director tried to eject her from the race. So uh, since we last talked to her, any other details we can share about Catherine? Well, her book, Marathon Woman, is apparently being made into a movie, which is really exciting to think about. Yeah. And she's still a prolific runner. She recently broke 60 minutes in a 10K race and is very active in the running community still. At the age of 70... Like when this was recorded, she actually ran 444 at Boston. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> astounding. Here's our conversation with Catherine Switzer. Well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Now that I'm well on my way, well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. All right, we're on the podcast now with Catherine Switzer. Catherine, it's an honor to have you on the show. 
Thank you guys so much. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I really love reaching out to special running communities like this. Uh, and especially after the Boston Marathon, when the pressure's off, it couldn't be better. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, we have uh, read your book, and we definitely recommend it to all of our listeners. I'm sure lots of folks have already read it. But I guess for those that are not familiar with your story, could you take us back to the beginning and just tell us how did you get started in long distance running? Well, thank you, Trevor, for asking about my uh, book first. Um, it's interesting. Marathon Woman was actually first published in 2007 and now has gone through several several editions. But the latest is, is that they relaunched it in a special edition. Um, Marathon Woman, new cover, you know, with me looking a little older, but, you know, still wonderfully photoshopped. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and all in blue and gold for the Boston marathon uh celebration of my 50th anniversary so yeah that's uh out and it's going like hotcakes again because the story you mentioned seems um never to get old um and and it's because everybody relates to this story in a funny way of their own hmm. which is just an overview is that being told at some time in your life that you are unwelcome or not good enough or you can't do something and then running especially helps us to become fearless and overcome the things that we don't believe we can do sometimes and that's one reason why we all run so that is really what the book is about it's sure it's about running but it's also about overcoming the impossible mm. anyway and and how it begins of course is those early days when i was uh, you know started with my early life when i was 12 and and my dad encouraged me to run a mile a day and i found that a totally transformational experience and it helped me through many things through my teen years in high school and um then at syracuse university how they had no sports for women there so I asked the men's track coach if I could run on the men's cross-country team. And he said, not officially, but I could come and work out with the team. Where I found me as a 20-year-old among all of these scholarship guys, a totally welcoming environment, which I found really unique in sports. You know, sort of gender-free, very motivational, very positive. <clears throat> One of the volunteer coaches was an ex-marathoner who was 50 at the time. I was only 19. And he helped encourage me to run. And, um, and helped train me for the Boston Marathon quite inadvertently at the time. He was an ex-marathoner, had run Boston 15 times, and would regale me with stories about the Boston Marathon. Wow. Arnie, right? Arnie. He's such a likable character when you read about him <laughs> in the well, book. He is, he is and wa was, no, well, he's passed away now, but, I mean, he was a total love and and a little bit of a meek, milky, toasty guy. <laughs> Except when he ran, and then of course he ran like a tiger, you know. Yeah. Um, but but he he felt heroic when he ran the marathon in Boston in particular, and he, here he was really he was he was just a mailman, you know, who slept through the snow every day. But he lived for this one day in his life when he was the hero in his life, um, and that was the Boston Marathon. So, he, you know, we were training, and, and of course that's everybody knows the story about how. Um, he was telling me another Boston story, and I said, well, let's quit talking about it and run it. And he said, but a woman can't do it. It's Women are too weak and too fragile. <laughs> <laughs> women can go through childbirth and pregnancy, but they can't run a marathon. That, exactly. I mean, it's laughable for me, but of course, I was born in 1978, so I didn't you know, have a lot of those, those hindrances that our society had set up back then. Just kind of tell listeners who you know, are a little bit younger, why did people think that women couldn't run marathons? 
Well, you know, it wasn't just marathons. It was anything that was arduous. The longest distance in the Olympic Games at the time was only 800 meters. And, you know, that was considered really arduous. And in fact, in 1928 at the uh, Amsterdam Olympics, it was uh, considered so frightening to see these women collapse in the race. Well, they didn't collapse. They one fell across the finish line in a <laughs> in a in a lunge for the tape. Um, and, and they decided that that you know this was dangerous for womanhood and that they would never have children get big legs and grow hair on their chest or something. Anyway, <laughs> they struck the event from the Olympic Games. I mean, that's how serious it was. Wow. So in ni- 1960, 32 years later only, they reinstalled the 800. So you can imagine doing something like a marathon, you know, really struck people as very, very dangerous for women and their roles were not to sweat and to look feminine. And, um, and the myths abounded, you know, about what would happen to you if you did something arduous. So my coach was really worried about that with me. And, um, uh, but he, he did say if I would prove to him in practice that I could do the distance, he would be the first person to take me to Boston. And that's how it all happened. <laughs> I love the antidote in the book where in practice, you ended up running close to 31 miles and you pretty much ran Arnie into the ground. <laughs> well, I actually did. And, and he passed out at the end of the workout. And the next day, all along his mail route, he was he would tell people, she ran me in the ground. She ran me in the ground. But you know what? Um, here was a guy who completely changed his views once it was shown to him and, and, and I proved it to him. You know, you, there was plenty of evidence of other women marathoners, of Mary Lepper and Lynn Carmen and even Roberta Gibb, who had jumped out of the bushes at Boston the year before. But he insisted, Arnie insisted that I sign up officially, that I had to follow the rules. Um, and that's, that's what caused the enormous controversy at Boston. Um, there was nothing, by the way, about gender in the rule book uh, about the marathon and nothing on the entry form. People just assumed a woman couldn't or wouldn't or didn't want to run, you know? Right. And you actually, you put KV Switzer, not because you wanted to deceive the race officials and get in, but just that's how you signed your name back then, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. But a lot of people still think I did that to deceive the officials, including the official himself. To his dying day, he believed I did that to fake him. But it's not true. <laughs> it, it, the, the truth is, is that I... I did sign my name that way ever since I was 12 because I wanted to be a writer like J.D. Salinger and E.E. E. Cummings. And um, also because my dad had misspelled my name on my birth certificate. <laughs> so I got, got tired of it being misspelled and writing with my initials was a, an easier way of always keeping it correct. <laughs> so take us back to the Boston Marathon in 1967. In the book, you talk about the registration was $3 and it had to be paid in cash. And I think you said there was like 733 runners maybe? Yep. And it was considered the biggest race in the world, the most prestigious. Um, and the morning of the race, my, my coach, uh, Arnie, picked up the bib numbers for our team, where some guys from the cross-country team had come with us, as well as my boyfriend, who, <laughs> who was an ex-All-American football player, who only was there because if a girl could do it, he could do it. He'd never <laughs> trained train more than a mile. I mean, it, what a motley crew we were, really. <laughs> but there were a couple of now coincidences that you couldn't repeat in a million years that came together and coalesced that morning. One was the weather. It was horrific. It was snowing, sleeting, um, headwind. We were utterly miserable with the snow that came down and completely soaked us and turned into big rainy blops. And so we all had on bulky gray sweatsuits. And so from a distance, I looked like one of the guys. And um, I was sad about that because I had on a very cute shorts and top that I wanted to show. <laughs> yes. um, 
And I was proud of myself. I wasn't there to prove anything, you know. It was a gift from my coach to be there. I had proved him. I was very proud of myself, though. And the guys were wonderful, okay? So they were very welcoming, and they said, I wish my wife would run or girlfriend would run. And and so, we, you know, getting into the starting pen and warming up was absolutely no issue. They weren't going to say, there's a girl, there's a girl, get out of here. Right. Um, but if it had been hot weather and I'd been in shorts and T-shirt, maybe the officials would have seen me and had a different tune. As it were, they checked off my bib number like anybody else's and pushed me into the starting pit. Wow. So, yeah, you know, they were, but they were harried. They were frantic. Where they were running out of time. The race was going to be late because of this weather. Everything was very disorganized. And the gun went off and down the street we went. And it, there was that, you know, first mile of bliss where you're finally there and you're finally at Mecca, you know, you're at the shrine at last Mm -hmm. after all that hard work. Um, And then you know what happened next, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think most of our listeners have seen that iconic photo where the race official is trying to seize you while you're running. Um, And of course, your your boyfriend body checks him, which is, (laughs) he was a huge guy. Uh, When people see the photo, are there any like common misconceptions that they might have, you know, like little details of the story that they're not aware of. Yeah, I, you have to keep telling the story correctly because people mythologize it and make up things. And, and throughout the years, I have seen the most amazing convoluted versions of the story, <laughs> not, not the least of which is in the independent newspaper in England three days ago. They used that picture and said she's being attacked by other competitors. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, which is so wrong. I mean, the guys were wonderful and really came to my defense. Well, what happened is the official was getting teased on on the bus by... Um, of other officials and journalists saying, oh, there's a girl in your race. And they ju- he jumped off the, bu- uh, the bus and went after me and attacked me from behind. So he grabbed me and completely blindsided me. I only heard him coming at the last moment. And he was out of control. I mean, I was scared, witless. And I tried to get away, and he was trying to rip off my bib. And then my coach was screaming, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. But then the big burly boyfriend, Tom, came running full tilt, as you said, and, and body checked him. Boom. Uh, so he was out of the race. And, <laughs> and Arnie said, run like hell. And you're laughing, right? Right. You're laughing. I'm because sure you were terrified. It though. wasn't a victorious moment. It didn't feel that way, probably. Huh? Well, it, it's because it's hilarious in the retelling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That the girl is running and being saved by her burly boyfriend. It's a Shakespearean drama, really. Right. And but but I was so scared. I was only 20. I felt like I had messed up something really important. That this was some kind of big deal race that I I was totally unwelcome in and I had screwed up. And, um, you know, women always blame themselves, you know. Um, But anyway, it was too late. My boyfriend had had smacked him. And then a really great thing happened is I got angry. Um, And I thought, well, come on, I've been training really hard for this. I, I know I can do it. And he's just trying to take me out because I'm a woman. Right. And I've never really had any kind of discrimination like that before. And, and um, I made the de- determination right there, age 20, that no matter what happened, I was going to finish the race. And that was a huge decision for a girl in her first marathon. Because uh, you really want to go home to your mom. You're so humiliated. <laughs> And it's hard enough to run your first marathon, you know, even if you are welcomed by everyone and you're not overcoming, you know, that discrimination. So And the weather's nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and 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 also now the press trucks alongside side of me giving me really a hard time. Oh no. You know, like what are you trying to prove? 
you know, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Um, you know, um, you're not really going to finish this race. You're not serious, right? You know, you can't do this. Women can't do this. You know, you don't belong here, that kind of stuff. And it, um, instead of getting cowed by it, it only hardened me. And I often say I started the Boston marathon as a girl and I finished the Boston marathon as a grown woman because you know, when we do run a marathon, we really go through a lifetime of experience anyway. You also can't stay angry and you get resolution. And so throughout this, I was wondering why this had happened. And then I realized I had to do something about it. So um, I came to the conclusion it wasn't even his fault, the old official. You know, he was just a product of his time. But I had to create opportunities for women because they they weren't there because they were afraid um, or they'd never have had an opportunity to experience anything else. And people had told them all their lives these myths, and they believed them because they didn't have an opportunity to experience anything different, to prove it wrong. So, of course, they weren't going to be running in the Boston Marathon. So I needed to create those opportunities. And by making that decision and having that epiphany in the race when I finished, I realized, hey, that's my life plan. You know, there it is. Boom, become a better athlete. Um, prove these guys wrong that you can run and um, then go ahead and create these opportunities. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but eventually it resulted in a global series of races in 27 countries, 400 races and a million women that got the event in the Olympic Games. So, you know, you never you never should limit your thinking mm. in both your physical abilities or, or what negative inspiration can help you change things into positives. So that was the greatest conclusion from that race. And I, I swear to you, I don't think a day passes when I don't thank old Jock Semple for attacking me in the Boston. <laughs> then running is transformative anyway. Yes. I mean, it, trans, it empowers us totally. So now I had all this empowerment, but also so the vision, you know, which was great. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our new sponsor, Lagoon Sleep. They make these awesome pillows that will help you get better sleep because sleep is so important for your recovery. The company, Lagoon, is founded by runners. It's pretty cool. Um, Emma Bates, one of the uh, top runners here in the U.S., uses her Lagoon pillow, so it's been fun to see her talk about that on Instagram. Angie, I know that you love sleep, and you like to track your sleep, and you're very picky about your pillow. I'm at an age where the wrong pillow can mean a frozen neck for a week. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So it is very important. Uh, You can just turn your head wrong and things start going wrong. So you really want to make sure that your pillow is dialed in because you do spend a lot of time on your pillow. So for you, that means like every hotel pillow throws your neck out. Yes. So I basically travel with my pillow. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. I mean, the key to staying energetic and injury-free while training is getting optimal sleep. That's where that recovery comes in. In fact, there was a prominent study of runners found that those not getting adequate sleep were 170% more likely to get injured. So no one has time for that. Nope. The great thing about Lagoon is that you get matched with a pillow that will be most comfortable for your sleep position and body type. So it's not like a one size fits all. And when you get it, it comes with the extra filler. So you can put more in if you want it a little thicker or you can take more out and it rolls up really nicely as well and then fluffs up nice. So it's easy to travel with, nice and cool to sleep on. Take a two-minute sleep quiz. You'll find your perfect Lagoon pillow. You can get 15% off your first purchase with our code MTA. That's lagoonsleep.com slash MTA. Use our code MTA for 15% off. Thanks also to our sponsor, AG1. They make our favorite all-in-one supplement. It's a 
healthy, delicious green drink packed full of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients made in New Zealand. So it's got to be good, right? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I've been taking AG1 for many years now. And one of the things I love about it, it's so convenient. It replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. They have awesome little travel packs that you can take with you, whether you're traveling for work or for a race. It's one of those great foundational habits to start your day with. Just go to drinkag1.com slash MTA to give it a try. That's drinkag1.com slash MTA. So a question from Debbie, one of our listeners, in her question says that women weren't officially allowed to run in Boston until 1972. She wants to know what happened between those two dates. You know, what happened that the organizers were finally convinced to open up the race to women? Well, you know what women do really well is we get together and we talk about it, okay? (laughs) And we decide how we can make change. And you have to understand that this was really out there. When the longest event in the Olympic Games is 800, now you're talking about a marathon, people think you're smoking poppy. They really do. Because (laughs) the marathon in those days was a really geeky event for peculiar people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't... um, It was everybody died in a marathon. Everybody had bloody feet. You had to be a masochist or something to run a marathon. (laughs) Uh, That was the image, right? It wasn't the joyful uh, freedom thing that it is now. But what we did is we continued to run at Boston because that um, in particular was the biggest platform. And we just would hide in the bushes and uh, filter into the race. And pretty soon we were very bold and we just walked into the middle and the back of the race um, without numbers. And the officials ignored us, but the press did not because they loved it. They saw how well we were running. Hmm. Then we organized. Um, Nina Cusick, in particular, was active with the um, Amateur Athletic Union, our federation at the time. Um, I had been expelled from the AAU for running Boston in 67. I had to wait out a year of expulsion. and, And then I also took a role in upstate New York. But what I was the best at is creating events because I wanted people to experience the feeling. I could also write and market. So that was my area. And then Sarah Berman in Boston was very, very active in in the local Boston scene. And so together, um, all of us uh, flew into this and legislated and we uh, legislated to get women official in the Boston Marathon by 1972. Well, actually, in the marathon, in distances further than 800 meters and uh, other road races. But Boston was the first major race that accepted us, and it was in 1972. And uh, Jock Semple had to welcome us into the race, um, (laughs) which she did rather begrudgingly and said, well, if women are going to run my race, they have to meet the men's qualifying time. And then it was 3.30. So way back in 1972, there were six of us who could run under 3.30. We were all there. And we ran. Um, It was a very, very warm day, but we comported ourselves really well. Um, And then Jock Semple said, wow, look at those women. They were really good. Uh, (laughs) I've never really been against women's running. Right. Uh, But you know what? We all forgave Jock, and Jock and Ivy especially became best of friends. I helped him launch his book. And um, I was with him just a few hours before he died. Uh, He was um, a man who changed my life so completely. And how can you not love somebody who Mm. really gives you the focus and the vision and and gave the women's rights movement one of the most incredible photos in women's rights history? 
Amazing. Amazing. That is amazing. So what did it take then for the women's marathon to become an Olympic event? Well, you know, again, what we do best is like Nina and co do a lot of legislation. What I did is organized events and gathered the statistics and data from these events. I had gone to Avon Cosmetics and gave them a business proposal. They loved it. They hired me. And so around the world with this multinational company, I was able to organize, as I say, 400 races in 27 countries. Hmm. So from those events, which we did um, on really scrupulously with IAF and IOC standards, we could provide the international representation, the performances, um, the glamour, the media coverage, and doing it in a women's only environment was especially important to the IOC because they didn't believe women could do things alone. They they believed that they it wouldn't they draw ran, anyone in. <laughs> yeah, well, if they ran in a men's event, a mixed event, they would say that the men are helping the women. So by <laughs> wow. doing it by doing it in women's only, they had to acknowledge the fact that they were extremely uh, efficient and proficient. Uh, and then the, the final thing we really worked on is the medical evidence to disprove the myths. But more importantly, what we showed is that women are actually superior in many ways to men in endurance and stamina. And that the marathon event, quite um, apart from uh, being the arduous activity that it that it is and dangerous for women, we're more ideally suited even than men for the longer distances. So that was a very reassuring thing for the IOC, and they voted the the event in in 81 for the 84 games. Wow. Now, Julie, another one of our listeners kind of commented, she says, you know, she's talking about how many of the things that we take for granted now simply weren't available back in the 60s and 70s, you know, for women, things like sports bras or running shoes, even, you know, women specific running shoes, or, you know, the the marathons didn't have hydration and fueling stations. Talk a little bit about, you know, the things that were just normal back then, that would be really unusual now. You wouldn't believe what surrounded the marathon in general, in terms of rules and other road races for men or women for that matter in the 60s you weren't allowed to put out a water station before 10ks wow (laughs) you weren't allowed to somehow taking water was perceived as a weakness or something just totally ridiculous of course shoes everybody had bloody feet because the equipment just wasn't wasn't there Hmm. And you had to order your running shoes specifically, the men's, you know, smallest size, you had to order them from out of the country. Yeah. Cost me $26. Too. Wow. <laughs> I mean, those days, are you kidding? $26 was like $260, you know? Yeah, yeah. You, oh my God, it was a killer. Anyway, <laughs> but, but the shorts for everybody chafed, yes. you know, they were heavy cotton duck um, or the old baggy sweatsuits, which would get all salty and, and chafy as well, and inefficient in terms of breathability or protection from cold and wet. So the equipment is completely changed. The sports bra, for better or worse, has transformed the life of millions of yes. women. <laughs> and um, the engineer who finally gets it totally right is going to be a multi, multi, multi-millionaire but for right now, it gets better every year, and uh, women's lives have been made possible, running lives have been made possible because of that, um, that particular garment. On and on it goes, and now the, the knowledge of hydration and uh, refueling is phenomenal. You know, Whether it's Gatorade or other replacement liquids, doesn't matter. Certainly in the Boston Marathon on Monday, 
I took water at every station um, halfway and then switched into Gatorade and water. I finished totally refreshed, felt better at the finish than I did at the start, wow. went out that night and put down a couple of beers without a headache, you know? That's so awesome. <laughs> That's and, how I like to roll right there. Yeah. Well, and, and this may be too much information, immediately could pee. So, so usually I can remember in the previous days, you know, that sometimes it, um, it was a little scary when you couldn't pee for like about 12 hours. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So you know that you're really, your system is working incredibly well and efficiently with these new, new products. So yeah. And Boston, Honestly, I'll tell you the truth, and I've told the Boston people this. They don't have their feelings hurt anymore. But <laughs> it was so poorly organized, the Boston Marathon, that even in 67 when I finished the race, I said to my coach, you know, all I have to do is organize properly what every, everything Boston did wrong in this race, and I could organize a terrific race. You know, no aid stations, no mileage markers in, in places where you could calculate your splits. The mileage markers in those days for years were out at different train stations and intersections that bore no resemblance to any divisible distance. In other words, like at 5.78 miles. Well, you could run with a stopwatch, but it didn't go usually further than an hour. And <laughs> something in your hand. So we all set our um, analog watch, our hands on the watch at noon, straight up. Hmm. And then when the gun went off, we pushed the stem in. So we had to calculate essentially what approximately what our time was. But I mean, I don't know about you guys. Even when the splits are at 5, 10, 15 miles, I can't do the math anyway. After <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. My math skills go out the window too. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, so, but the other thing is if you were a competitive athlete, it was cool because you didn't worry about time. You worried about the race. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? Watching the movement of the racers and stuff like that. But yeah, how, how it's changed. But it's all fantastic. And, and on Monday, it was unbelievable, the, the reception and the welcome all the way through the race. It was phenomenal. That's amazing. No, no one tried to eject you. <laughs> no, but you know what is funny? I have been out to that Boston course, you know, many times um, since the incident in 50 years ago. And I never could quite place where it happened. Hmm. Um, hmm. Finally, this year, I got out all the photographs and studied the background. And I had assumed that houses had been torn down and other buildings put in and landscape changed and roads widened and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden in the race on Monday, there it was. It, boom. I said, that's it. That's it. And <laughs> somebody recorded it, but some camera was going. So I said, that's it. That's it. That's the place. Oh, my gosh. And I blew Jock Semple a big kiss. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> We had a lot of folks that were curious uh, because you had a great finishing time on Monday. So here's a, for example, here's a question from Edith. I would love to hear about her journey as a female master's runner. How do you cope with changes of the aging female body, for example? Any tips you can give when it comes to that? Absolutely. The, uh, first of all, it's never too late to become an athlete. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm meeting women who are 70, 75, 80 who are only starting to run, and they're incredible. They've got old bodies, but they've got new legs. That's you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, here's, here's my biggest tip, I think, which is, is to try to stay fit and healthy your whole life. And the more you do in a way, the more you can do. The other thing that I'm really adamant about is if, if I feel an injury or, or a twinge or something coming on, I always back off now. Just back off, you know, taking two days off now save, saves two weeks later, saves two months, two years sometimes. Right. And also to always have a goal, you know, it, it's sometimes a drag just to keep getting out and running. 
so have a goal, whether it's a local little 5K or get together with your friends and go to an event. That's always a goal gives you a purpose. And simple things, you know, like keep the shoes right by the door and put them on and go outside, you know. <laughs> right. <Come on. laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to start doing some work with, with Humana um, and the rock and roll series on healthy aging. Hmm. Because here's the point is people regard older women, uh, older people in sports and in running, the way they used to regard women. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you're going to get a heart attack. You're too frail. You might fall down. Don't push yourself. Why not push yourself? (laughs) Oh, come on. The body regenerates. The body wants to, to stress and then recover. And that's how you build muscle mass and bone mass and keep healthy. You use it or lose it, basically. Truly. In the case of older people, especially, the muscle mass is extraordinarily important in in terms of keeping balance uh, as well, because that's our number one cause of death is a fall, believe it or not. Mm. Wow. (laughs) People fall down, break a hip, you get pneumonia and you die. And it's Mm. it's icky. It's really, really icky. Or you get osteoporosis. And so you fall down because the bone gives way. So the weight bearing exercise is extremely important. Needless to say, um, cardiovascular disease is the biggest cause of death in in the entire population. It kills more people than all of the cancers combined, plus diabetes, plus HIV. Yet, I'm not talking about running. I'm just talking about going out for a 30-minute walk can reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease by 45%. Mm-hmm. So if, if nothing else, get a dog and go out walking with that dog for 30 minutes a day. And I, w- I would say another tip that's always good is um, get a buddy. You know, so a buddy gets you out even when it's raining and cold and dark. Get with a group sometimes that would make it fun. Start a 261 Fearless Club in your community and you have a, a bunch of people that non judgmental, non competitive. You're there together for a couple of hours every week. It's terrific. That way you have a sense of community, which is very important. But also, let's face it, um, we know running raises your level of endorphins and is transformational. And a lot of old retired people, you know, suddenly find themselves in a life that is uh, kind of going nowhere. And running actually gives them a huge purpose and a new life and a new community. That's awesome. And people should definitely pick up a copy of the updated Marathon Woman. Yeah, we need to get a copy of that. Yes, I think we, have we have the old, old version. So <laughs> still a very good book. So, you know, whether you pick up the old version or the newer one. Well, what's fun is um, in June, I'm going to record an audio version of this book. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, it'll be a good oral history, you know, when it, if it's if it's on my own voice. I would never, ever have imagined um, 261 Fearless, what happened in my life. And it's the first thing I've done that I might not see the total fruition of, if you see what I mean. See, I was there for the Olympics in 84. I was doing television commentary by that time. That became my career. I was overwhelmed and thrilled to be there when Joan Bonoit Samuelson came into the stadium as, you know, as well as Greta Weitz and Rosa Moda and Ingrid Christensen and all these amazing, wonderful women. And then I thought it would have its own life after that, and it did. But 261 Fearless is going to grow and change the world. And um, I'm not going to be around in 50 years. So it is awesome to think of the changes that are going to take place. And the listeners out there right now are the people who are going to make it happen. You guys are making it happen. You're out there communicating right now. So if people wanted to find more information about 261 Fearless, where would they go? 261fearless.org. And there's, if you want to start a community club, we would love you to do that. If you want to donate, we'd love you to do that too. We're creating 
most importantly, the community of women around the world so women can talk to each other and share share that community and become empowered by the simple act of running. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for letting us uh, talk to you. And it was such an honor to, to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Good luck to everybody. All right. Well, that was our conversation with Catherine Switzer, still relevant today. And if you haven't read her book, uh, the book is called Marathon Woman. And at the very least, just Google Catherine Switzer, 1967 Boston Marathon. So you can see those photos that I was about to say broke the internet, but that was... (laughs) Would have broken the internet if there was an internet. (laughs) Broke the newspapers. (laughs) Yes, right. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you have any fellow runners, friends who would also enjoy the conversations and interviews, one way that we get found is via word of mouth. So thanks for sharing. And you can also connect with us on the socials at Marathon Academy. If we can help you in any way, be sure to drop us a line. We've got a contact form on our website. We'd love to hear from you. You can also hop on the phone with Coach Nicole, talk about what your goals are for the next year and how we can help you break through any barriers that you're facing and run a faster marathon, run your first marathon, your first ultra, whatever you're working on, we've got a coach who can help you get there. You can check that out over at marathontrainingacademy.com. Thanks for being a listener. You guys are awesome. Always remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my